We're picking it up today in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. And follow along as I read. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And as each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for the freedom that we have to gather like we are today in your name, to celebrate you, to study your word, to worship you. And Lord, we know the freedom that we celebrate and appreciate in this country didn't come lightly, that it has come at the loss of people in our armed services, in our military, who have lost their lives. And on this Memorial Day weekend, Lord, we are thankful for them, and we pray just for your grace and your comfort to be upon any family here in our fellowship, any family online, anybody that we know who has experienced the loss of a loved one. And Lord, I pray that they would know that their sacrifice was not in vain. And Lord, we also are thankful for your ultimate sacrifice that has given us the ultimate freedom of being able to know God and live in relationship with you. We pray today that as we open up your word, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would teach us, that we would know how we should be living as followers of Jesus in these turbulent times. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. And everyone said? So as I mentioned, we are in a deep dive study here in 1 Peter, week 17. And last week we began this section here in chapter 4, and we entitled last week's message, Living in the Last Days, part 1. Today is part 2, and we named it that because in verse 7, Peter makes this statement. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And the primary concept of that idea of the end of all things is that it is the achievement of an attended goal, or it is the conclusion of a process. In other words, everything that we see happening in our world today is not by happenstance. It doesn't happen randomly, but God has a orchestrated plan for this planet. He has an orchestrated plan for humankind, and that plan is in motion as the Lord is taking us to and through this time. Now, oftentimes when we talk about the plan of God, we we can look at it and feel like that God's timing or his timetable is slow. How many of you ever felt that way, that God's timetable is slow? And, And we feel at times like God is just taking forever, although he would say, no, 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 things are right on schedule. And it's interesting is that when we talk about the delay in the coming of the Lord, it's actually something that those in the first century, they wrestled with as well. 
fact, we saw this last week when we jumped in to chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter said, and for all of you who are asking, you know, where is the promise of his coming? This is what you need to understand. He said, God's time frame is different from ours because with God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And so we look at it and go, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised to return. And God says, actually, in my estimation, it's only been about two days. Which only magnifies the patience of God and the heart of God. And one of the things I always like to ask when we're talking about the coming of the Lord is this question. By show of hands, how many of you here were not saved, that you didn't know you weren't a follower of Jesus in 1996? Show of hands, all of you here, okay? Several of you around the room. How about the year 2000? How many of you were not saved in the year 2000? Show of hands, okay, again, many of you around the room. How about 2005? How many of you were not saved in 2005? Okay, again, a lot of you in the room. How about 2010? How about 2000? Okay, again, a lot of you still weren't saved. 2015, how many of you were not saved in 2015? Okay, still some. How about 2020? Anybody here not saved in 2020? Just put their hand down really, really quick. <laughs> okay, so here's what I always like to ask. Aren't you glad that Jesus hasn't come yet? For those of you who would have missed out, having not come to Christ in any of those years, because this is what the Bible says, if the rapture would have happened, the world would have entered into a time the Bible describes as the great tribulation, a time where it says that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. And so when we see that God, he is waiting still, it's because he says, I don't want anybody to perish. So he waits. He's patient. And for all everybody who just raised their hand in those little questions that I asked, you are all really, really glad that he has been patient. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. Now, we also talked about that several of the New Testament writers wrote over 2,000 years ago the idea, the Holy Spirit inspiring them, that Jesus was coming soon. And we noted that the reason why the Holy Spirit has wanted his church in every single generation to live and to function with a mindset toward the soon return of Christ is because God knows that we are much more effective, much more impactful when we are living in that way. Now, we also noted last week, we talked about a couple signs that were indications that maybe we are living right now in what we might call the last of the last days. And I pointed you to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2, where it says in the last days that the city of Jerusalem would be a stumbling block to all the surrounding nations around the world. And we talked about how this latest battle between Israel and Palestine has centered completely around the city and really control of the city of Jerusalem, a city in the Middle East that has a square mile circumference of the size of Oceanside. Oceanside is 43 miles in its square mile, 43 square miles. Israel or Jerusalem is 48 square miles. Well, the battle is, came to a ceasefire this past week. 
But the tension against Israel is still heating up. If you've been following the news, maybe you saw this. This was in the headlines that the United Nations met to discuss Israel. And there are those in the United Nations that are advocating that Israel would be charged with war crimes because of the damage and the loss of life that happened in Gaza. Now, Israel, I don't know the exact figures, but the amount of missiles that they fired into Gaza was somewhere, I think it was under 400. The amount of missiles that Hamas uh, fired at Israel was 4,300. And they want to charge Israel with war crimes. It's crazy, isn't it? And also this past week, Islamic nations asked the United Nations to form an unprecedented permanent panel to critique Israel. The nations surrounding Israel, the tension about you know their hatred against Israel is heating up. And when this conversation comes up, you always need to keep your eye on Iran. Here's why. Iran hates Israel. Many of their leaders have said in recent years that they think Israel should be blown off the face of the map. In fact, there are maps that were produced in the Middle East in 2015. You can look this up. And Israel is not on those maps. It doesn't exist. The Collins Atlas that came out in 2015. Israel does not exist on that atlas because there is a move in the Middle East amongst many of those nations that they want to do away with Israel. The State Department says that Iran every single year gives or supports in the tune of a hundred million dollars to Palestinian terror groups like Hamas. And in this recent, you know, battle that has taken place, Iran is claiming responsibility for the victory that they're saying Hamas had in that battle. And Hamas has been, or Iran has been giving Hamas weapons and missiles and rockets and technology for many, many, many years. And all of it is to stir up the tension in the nations and the surrounding groups around Israel. And again, all of it is centered around the city of Jerusalem. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor Rob, who cares? Why should I care about you know what's going on with all of these people clear on the other side of the world in some city that I've never been to and I never plan to maybe go to? Well, the reason why you should care and the reason why this is significant is because Another one of the things that the Bible says will happen in the last days is in Ezekiel chapter 38. It tells us that there will be a contingency of nations that will come against Israel, led by Russia and Iran. And what's significant about that is Russia has been supplying Iran for years with missiles, with training, with uh biological weapons, technology for nuclear weapons. They are in cahoots. They are connected. And it's all a part of what the Bible says will be happening in the last days where these nations are going to come against Israel. And we see things moving in that direction every single day, more and more. It's heating up. So pay attention. 
Now, the Bible says in light of the times that we are living, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we need to redeem the time. We need to be making the most of the time. We need to make sure that our time counts. And so that's what we have been talking about in our study last week, and we're going to talk about today. And we noted four things last week that Peter laid out in verses 1 through 6 that should be our mindset of those who believe that we are living in the maybe the last of the last days in following Christ, that we are to, first of all, resist sin, that that we make sure that we're no longer giving ourselves to sin, that we are to renounce our past, that we realize that in Christ we are a new creation. So we're to say to things like sexual immorality and drunkenness and all of these things that were a part of our old life, enough, I'm done with that. And we are to make it our priority to be running towards the will of God and finally, that we are to reach the lost. That was our focus of our study last week, living in the last days, part one. Today, I want to give you four more insights from verses seven through 11. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we see here is that we are to be sober-minded and given to prayer. There in verse 8, when he says that we are to be, or verse 7, serious and watchful, it carries the idea of being sober-minded. In fact, several Bible translations actually put it that way, to be alert and sober-minded. To be sober-minded is actually the opposite of being cavalier. It's the opposite of being nonchalant. It's the opposite of being reckless. It's interesting that this phrase being sober-minded was also used in Mark chapter 5, verse 15 in describing a man that was demon-possessed. And this, this man was so demon-possessed and so crazy, it was like he was insane and so reckless that, that he was just causing great havoc in his town. They couldn't do anything to stop this guy. They tried to chain him up to no avail. And then he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus meets this guy. And the demons are gone. And when the townspeople come out, they find this guy clothed, and it says, sitting and in his right mind. And that idea of him being in his right mind is the exact idea of of what Peter's talking about here in being sober-minded. But it really magnifies, this is what happens when Jesus encounters a person's life. There is a complete transformation. Sober-minded carries the idea of being clear-headed and not moved by our emotions. And this is why this is connected, this exhortation is connected to prayer. You see, when we are given to prayer, we, we learn to respond in the Spirit rather than reacting in the flesh. You know, I have learned in my Christian walk the importance, kind of learned this the hard way, But I've learned the importance of stepping back and praying. Of stepping back and just waiting rather than reacting. You know, I'm Italian. And, you know, naturally I want to react. Naturally I want to, you know, in a situation that's hot and heavy, I want to give you a piece of my mind. And I used to do that a lot. And sometimes what I would say would be hurtful, or I would react emotionally, or in anger. I'd do more damage than good. And so I have learned to step back, to wait, 
to pray, to process, to be sober-minded in those type of situations. And that's what Peter's advocating here. But so often, prayer can be a hard discipline for us. And I think part of the problem is because of our approach. You see, we tend to approach prayer as an activity. We will say things like, you know, I'm going to set up a time to pray, almost like we would say, I'm setting up a time each day to exercise. We view prayer sometimes like an activity. I'm going to a prayer meeting. I'm getting together and I'm going to pray about this situation. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the Bible does tell us that we are to pray without ceasing. And the idea of without ceasing speaks of two things. One, it speaks of dependency. It's an acknowledgement of, of God. I always, I know that, that without you, I can't do anything. So I always want to stay in connection with you. I always want to be talking with you. But that praying without, without ceasing also speaks of relationship. Think of it this way. I don't schedule times to talk with my wife at least not regularly or usually. It's not like, okay, every morning at 6 a.m., we're going to get together for 30 minutes and we're going to talk. I'm going to talk for 15 minutes and you're going to listen. And then you can talk for 15 minutes and I'm going to listen. And then we'll be on our way. That's not how we communicate. Why? Because we are in a relationship. We are doing life together. So we are talking all the time. We're talking all day long. She's calling or texting. We're talking back and forth. And we talk about everything. We talk about serious things. We talk about difficult things. We have meaningless conversations. You know, we, we share our hearts. That wasn't meant to be funny. But, uh, <laughs> that was not a knock at my wife at all. <laughs> But we have those conversations. We talk about important things. We talk about, you know, things, trivial things. We're constantly talking with one another because we are doing life together. And here's my point. My prayer life now, it really took on a whole new meaning. When I started approaching talking to God the way I talk to my wife, except with a lot more reverence toward God. I revere my wife, but, you know, God's God. But realizing I'm doing life together with Jesus. We're in a relationship with one another. So I'm talking with him all day long. When I'm walking, when I'm driving, when I'm sitting, someone or something comes into my mind, I talk to him about it. A situation comes up. I talk to him about it. I'm interacting with him all the time because we have this relationship and I want to include Jesus in everything that is going on in my life. Always seeking after his heart and his wisdom and his way and always wanting to be able to share with him, Lord, I'm frustrated about this. Can you help me? having that kind of conversation with them. And I will say there are times where I need to pull back because of all the distractions and find some quiet place where I can really, really hear him speak to me. But the idea is praying without ceasing. 
realizing, being, being alert about the times that we are living in and being alert, being sober-minded and given to prayer. That's the first thing that Peter tells us of how we should be living in the last days. The second thing he says is that we are to be loving. He says, and above all things. Those words, above all things, remind us of the priority of love amongst God's people. That love is really the badge of the believer. Jesus said in John 13, and by this they will know that you are my disciples. By your church attendance? Nope. By that big Bible you carry around? Nope. By the Christian music you listen to? Nope. How are they going to know, he says, that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. And Peter is going to describe love here in two ways. That we are to love fervently and we are to love graciously. Notice verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. The word fervent literally means strenuous. It's a word that in ancient times was used to describe a horse at full gallop. Now picture that. You've seen that, a horse. It's at, at full gallop and all of its muscles are protruding out of its chest and it's, you see the strenuousness that's happening. It was also used of Olympic athletes as they're running in the race and with everything that they got, they're running towards the finish line. They're giving all that they have that they might win the race. So let me translate, retranslate this verse. When you love people, Give it all you got. When you love people, hold nothing back in your love for them. Love people like you are trying to love, win the love Olympics. That's loving fervently, strenuously. It's interesting, this same word is used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before he was going to go to the cross, And he's in agony as he's praying. He's praying about what's going to happen the next day. And he says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Three times he he prayed that, and he was just distraught. He was in agony at, at what was awaiting him. And we read in Luke 22, verse 44, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, same word there, fervently, strenuously, And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now listen, listen church. Here's what we learn from this. Christian love takes work. It isn't something that always comes easy. It takes work. To love someone takes work. To love fervently is going to require being stretched being pressed out of our comfort zones. And listen, oftentimes, our reluctancy to want to love somebody that is difficult or somebody that has hurt us is because we don't want to be pressed and we don't want to be stretched. And so oftentimes, we isolate ourselves or we run from those situations because we want it to be easy. And let me just say this too. Fervent love for others flows really out of a fervent love for Jesus. And a fervent love for Jesus flows out of our understanding of how much we have been loved by him. 
how loving and gracious and forgiving he has been to us. And when we grab a hold of that, we respond in love towards him and his love then begins to flow through us so that we can love others in that same way. It all flows together. Now let me just say this. I want to speak from the heart for a moment about fervent love. Because there is something right now that is kind of concerning me a little bit. You see, prior to COVID, I think many in the church here in America had become a little nonchalant in their fervency toward Jesus. I think there were a lot of Christians that just found themselves just kind of going through the motions. And I think it's easy when you've maybe been walking with the Lord for a long time to just kind of begin to take things for granted. And I think that's one of the reasons why the researchers tell us that here in America, amongst, you know, American quote unquote Christians, that the average church attendance prior to COVID was people would go 1.3 Sundays a month. That was all. Now, I've always said when we bring up a statistic like that, that most of you here are not average. That's not your testimony. That's not you. And I've always encouraged you, don't become average. But that was the mindset. And then COVID hit. And then we had these months where we couldn't meet. And something happened when we opened the doors back up. We saw something in you. I've talked to other pastors that they, they begin to see something in, in, in their people in their churches as well. There was a heightened appreciation for gathering like this. There was a heightened passion in coming together. And not that church is the end all. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that most of us came to a place where we were like, man, this is essential and I need this. I need the body of Christ. And we saw a marked difference in all of you as we gathered together. There was a vibrancy and a renewed appreciation and a fervency in worship. Our worship leaders were, would say, man, the church is singing so loud today. And we love that. And you guys have always been a worshiping church, but you took it to another level. And I noted in my teaching that there was an engagement that was stronger than it had been before. And it was cool. In fact, I, I felt, and, and many pastors that, that I talked to who were you know, saying, man, I'm we're, we're seeing the same thing in our church, that it's the closest thing to revival that we've seen in a really, really long time. And so here's my plea for all of us. Let's not lose that. Let's not lose our fervency towards the Lord. Let's not lose our appreciation for what we're doing here as we come together. Because this is important. And I think the devil, now that our world is opening up again, he's wanting to distract us from what should be our number one passion. And that's Jesus. 
So my heart is, is burdened a little bit, if, if I am honest. Because I want us to fan this flame. I want us to be stirring up one another, as the Bible says. Can I get an amen to that? You with me on that? And I think one of the things that helps us is when we do live with the idea, the reality that Jesus could return at any moment. That's our mentality. It does affect the way that we live. Think of it this way. A train is coming to a depot. And there's two people that are waiting. One person is the ticket agent. He sits in his little booth. He knows all the schedules. He knows when all the trains are coming. He knows if there's a delay. You could say he's an expert on train schedules. The other person is a bride-to-be. And on the train coming, the 3 p.m. train, her fiancé is on board. Her love. And she can't wait to see him. She's there early. Let me ask you this. Who do you think is going to be more excited about the 3 p.m. train? The bride-to-be. Guys, the Bible says we're the bride-to-be. That's who we are. We're the bride of Christ. And we're waiting for his coming. But sometimes some of us can look a little bit more like the ticket agent. We've studied prophecy. We know the schedules. We're aware of the times and the seasons. We've seen you know, things happen and things not happen. And, and sometimes we can kind of come to that place where we just kind of lose that vibrancy. We need to be more like the bride-to-be. Realizing, hey, our Lord is coming to get us. We are bridegroom and we're his bride. And he's coming to take us to be like himself. You know, my mentor, John Corson, made this statement a few years back. He was talking about the Jesus people movement. Some of you were around during that time. Some of you got saved during that time. During the Jesus people movement, there was a lot of talk about prophecy, about the last days, about the coming of the Lord. And there was a lot of people that were excited about that. But when Jesus didn't show up, when he didn't come, a lot of those people that got saved in the Jesus people movement, who were excited about the coming of the Lord, fell away from the Lord, walked away from the Lord. And Corson made this observation. He said, In the Jesus people, there were a lot of people who were excited about the coming of the Lord, but not the Lord who was coming. Let's be excited about both. Amen? Amen. About being reunited with our bridegroom. So we are to love fervently, and it starts with having a love for Jesus that then carries over into our love for one another, but we're also to love graciously. Again, verse 8, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. It was F.F. Bruce who said this, love covers unworthy things rather than bringing them to the light and magnifying them. Whenever I read first. Peter 4, 8, it reminds me of the story of Noah. After the flood, we read there in the book of Genesis that Noah had a little bit too much to drink one day. He got drunk. 
And so there he is, passed out, naked in his tent, and his son Ham comes along and finds his dad. And what does Ham do? He runs to go and tell his brothers. He's going to expose his dad's sin. Man, you should go check out dad. He's he's smashed in the tent, naked. But his two brothers had such a love for their dad that they grabbed a blanket, put it between them, walked into the tent backwards, got to the point where their dad was and flung it back and then walked out because they wanted to cover their dad's sin because they loved him. That's what love does. It's been said that love throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. Such a love will not publicize the faults and failings of other believers, but will protect them from public view. It was the theologian Wayne Grudem who said this, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion and every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Above all things, he says, be loving. Love fervently and love graciously. The third thing he tells us is to be hospitable. Hospitality is a New Testament word that literally means loving the stranger. Our English word hospital comes from this word. That's a good description of a lot of hospitals, right? They love the stranger. Some hospitals really have, you know, a reputation for being a place that they just give great, great care. You feel really, really loved and taken care of when you go there. I know that my son-in-law, Scott, my daughter, Amanda, when they went through the thing with their daughter, Lennon, who almost died a couple of months ago, that the, the group down there at Kaiser where they were, they took such amazing care of them. They loved on them and they stood by them and they cared for them and they cared for little Lennon. And, and a relationship with many of those doctors and nurses has been forged into the deepest part of Scott and Amanda's heart. They will forever be close to those people because that's what they did. They, they love them in that way. Well, listen, the body of Christ is supposed to be like a hospital for the hurting and the needy. They were to love one another in that type of way. And in New Testament times, they didn't have, you know, a lot of hotels, like they didn't have any hotels like we have today. And so when, when a stranger would come into your town, there was actually like an obligation. It was like the cultural norm to invite them into your house. And Peter says, but when you do that, be, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You see, that's the ultimate test of our hospitality. Is your hospitality without grumbling? Is it without complaining? Is it without murmuring? You see, if we're honest, sometimes we begrudgingly respond to needs, don't we? It's kind of like this. It's kind of like, if I must, you know? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, you know, like, if if I have to. But here's the thing. People see through that, and God sees through that. And so we lose our reward. And so Peter says, no, no, no. Yeah, be hospitable, but without grumbling, without murmuring, without complaining. It's recognizing and realizing how hospitable Jesus has been to us. 
to make a way for us to come into his house and to be a part of his family. And then finally, number four, Peter tells us to be good stewards. Look at verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What does he mean by the manifold grace of God? I've heard of an intake manifold. I've heard of an exhaust manifold. What is he talking about when he says the manifold grace of God? The word manifold, you might want to circle it right next to it, the many-colored grace of God. It's saying there are many shades of God's grace. And this is the point that Peter is making here. God's grace is most clearly seen when everyone in the body of Christ is using their gifts. So when somebody with the gift of hospitality shows that gift and exercises that and showing hospitality towards somebody else, it's like the color blue. And somebody else has that same gift and, and they show hospitality towards someone else and it's a different shade of blue because their personality and temperament and everything is a little bit different. And then somebody else comes along and they have the gift of encouragement and they're encouraging somebody and it's the color purple. And somebody else comes along and they, they're seeking to you know, use the gift of helps and it's the color red. And somebody else comes along and they have the gift of giving and they're using that gift and it's the color green. And all of it together makes up this beautiful picture of God's many colored grace that is so clearly seen when everybody in the body of Christ is using their gifts. It's such a beautiful thing. It creates this beautiful array of color. Now, Peter here divides the gifts into two categories, speaking and serving. Notice verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, that's the word serves there, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. Here's what he says. To those who speak, now that could be giving advice, giving encouragement, could be teaching. It could be giving words of prophecy or words of wisdom. He says, for those of you who speak, that that's your gifting, you're speaking into other people's lives, make sure that what you're saying is in line with the word of God, not your own opinion. Make sure that what you're saying is in line with God's word and not what culture thinks. It's, it's stressing the importance of having God's word in our hearts and having a clear worldview, a, a biblical worldview for our lives. But in this idea of speaking the oracles of God is also connected. What's connected to to this idea is this. It's not just speaking truth, but it's speaking with the right heart. Paul said that we're to speak the truth in love. You see, you can speak forth truth and be a jerk. It's speaking the truth in love. So the one who is using their gift in speaking is, is seeking to do it where I, I'm sharing God's word and I'm sharing God's heart with the people that he's allowing me to speak into their lives. And then he mentions serving. That those who serve or those who minister, that they should do it with the strength that God supplies. And here's a phrase that should never ever be a part of a Christian's vocabulary. None of us, we should, none of us should ever say, 
I can't. Because God says, no, with me, you can. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You see, this is the story of the Bible. None of us should ever say, I can't love, or I can't do that, or I can't serve, or I can't be used in that way. God says, no, 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 no. I have made it my business to work in extraordinary ways through ordinary people. That's what he does. So none of us should ever come to a place where we're saying, well, I I can't, or God could never use me in that. No, 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 no. For those who serve, you do it. You take that step, even when you think there's nothing in you that could meet that need, you take that step believing that God's going to supply you with a strength that you don't have. And the result of all of that, Peter tells us, is God gets glorified. When the body of Christ is going forth and and the many shades of God's grace are being seen in all the one of our lives as we're using our gifts, God gets glorified. People are going, how did that happen? And we're like, it was God. Him working through us. And Peter says, that's the goal. That the manifold grace of God would be on display through each one of our lives. I'll close with this story. This happened in a village in France that got bombed during World War II. And in this village, they had a statue of Jesus that they were very, very fond of. It was a very famous statue And in the bombing, it got destroyed. It got knocked over. It crumbled into some pieces. And they were determined because they loved this statue of Jesus. It was just such a a part of their little village that they rebuilt it. They brought in a craftsman and they took the original pieces and they rebuilt it. But the problem was there was only two pieces of this statue they couldn't find. And that was the hands. So they had this handless statue of Jesus. And they put a plaque underneath the statue that said this, he has no hands but ours. And this is what I want to leave you with today. As we talk about that God's desire is that that he would be manifesting his many-colored grace through all of our lives, that we would realize that he has no hands but ours. He has no feet but ours. He has no mouth but ours. That it's really true that we get to be, it's our privilege, the hands and feet and heart of Jesus to a needy world that is all around us, that so desperately needs to see him. And as we seek to be people who are saying, here God, you can use me. Lord, I'm going to trust in your strength and your grace. You can use me that the manifold grace of God pours forth from our lives. And it's a beautiful thing for the world to see. And people get saved. 